we're at the end of a three-week uh, mini-series called Church Matters. We've spent the first couple of weeks talking about, does church really matter? Does it matter that we show up here every weekend? And Ryan talked on the first week about what's happening when we gather in this space and we sing praises together and we worship God together. And then last week, Jeff took us into Romans 12 and he began to talk about how we are supposed to be not conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And we looked at the idea that the scriptures and biblical teaching and preaching are critical to that process. We have to know the truth, we have to understand the truth if it's going to transform us and renew our minds. This week, I want us to dig a little deeper into that transformation process. What does it look like practically in my life for my mind to be renewed? What's my part in the process? How does transformation take place and what do life groups have to do with any of this? Because I mean, you know, I'm the life groups guy. If you're going to put me up here, I'm going to talk to you about life groups, okay? It's, we're in the middle of sign up right now, so it's the perfect time to talk about that. But are life groups important? Why does it matter that we gather in life groups? We're going to be in Ephesians 4 today. If you want to turn there, you can find uh, verse 17 is where we're going to start. But before we get there, I'm going to bring you up to speed a little bit because we're jumping right into the middle. Chapter 4 is a turning point for the Apostle Paul in this book, in this letter to the Ephesians. He spent the entire first three chapters outlining what I would call the new reality that's available to us in Christ. When Jesus came to earth, died on a cross, lived a perfect life, died on a cross, uh, rose again, and then ascended into heaven, a whole new reality became available to the human race. That new reality is called the kingdom of God. And if you or I trust in Jesus' death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, we have the opportunity to enter back into relationship with the God of the universe. It's the central defining characteristic of this new reality. But all the first three chapters of, of Ephesians is about what's true in that new reality. Paul talks about the incredible depths of God's love. He talks about the inheritance of those who choose to follow Jesus. He talks about the power that's available to us who believe. He talks about the dividing wall that's been broken down between us and God and between us and other people, between Jew and Gentile. And he talks about the great mercy of God and the abundant loving kindness of our Father. And throughout the first three chapters of Ephesians, there are literally no commands of anything to do except for one in chapter two to remember your old way of life. And I think that's because Paul wants to lay out for the Ephesians and he wants to lay out for us the grandness of this new reality and it is breathtaking. I would encourage you this week, go read the first three chapters of Ephesians and just take in all that God has done for us in Christ. But chapter four, Paul turns a corner. He begins to talk about how we should walk or live in this new reality, which is where we pick up his thoughts Verse 17, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they having become calloused have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Now, before we get too far into the text, I want to reread verse 17 for you to see if I can help you hear it the way the Ephesians heard it. So here we go. So this I say 
and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Americans also walk in the futility of their minds. When you hear it that way, I think maybe some objections pop up in your mind. You're thinking some questions, why not? What's wrong with the American way of life? I'm an American, I'm proud to be an American. Why shouldn't I live like an American? If those are the thoughts running around in your head, then you understand a little bit of what the Ephesians were feeling because Paul's telling them not to be who they've always been. The book of Ephesians is written to primarily to Gentiles and he's saying not to live like Gentiles. Don't live like everybody else around you. Then he goes on to answer the questions that may have been popping up in their mind. He says, here's why. Don't walk the way the Gentiles walk. Don't live that way because it's futile. It's not worth it. It's not going to get you anywhere. Because their minds were darkened in their understanding of God. They were ignorant. They were excluded from the life of God. They were, their hearts were hard. In the ancient world, light was a universal symbol for understanding. And Paul's saying Gentiles don't have it. In the New Testament, light is used to indicate the life-giving relationship with God. And again, the Ephesians have been in the dark. They did not have an understanding of the life of God, of the life-giving relationship with God and their separation, he says, and ignorance and darkness led them to sensuality and impurity and greed. All things that don't satisfy, by the way. Not a very satisfying life. I want you to notice that sensuality and impurity and greed are not the cause. They are the result. Sensuality and impurity and greed are a problem, but the biggest problem for the Gentiles or for the Ephesians is how they think about God and how they think about life in relation to God. And the fact is they're dark, they don't understand it. And Paul goes on to say then to them, why you people that I'm writing this letter to, why you shouldn't live that way any longer because something had happened to them. They had learned something, verse 20. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus. Now I want us to notice the language here because it's very specific and your Bible might not say it the way mine does. This is a new American standard. The literal translation does not say you did not learn about Christ in this way if indeed you have heard about him. The literal translation says, you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him. What's the difference? Why is that important? Because Paul's talking about learning a person here. He's talking about the fact that his readers have been schooled in the Messiah. They have met Jesus. They know him. They have firsthand experiential knowledge of him. And they know how much the way of Jesus is different from the way of the Gentiles. So it's Paul saying here that all of these people that he's writing to met Jesus when he was on earth? Not very likely. Because <laughs> to our knowledge, Jesus didn't, we, he didn't go to Ephesus. We, we know, believe that it's Paul who took the gospel to Ephesus, who established the church in Ephesus. So what's he talking about? Well, verse 21, I think, gives us some insight into that. It says, you have been taught in him. He's saying That's the context of their learning, that this relationship, they've come to know him personally and are in him. They are in Christ, they're in union with him. And then 
in the midst of that, just as truth is in Jesus, meaning Jesus embodies and encompasses truth, there is no truth outside of him. It does not exist apart from him. So let me see if I can put this together for you with an image, all three of these ideas. First of all, Jesus is the subject, right? He's his person, his life, the truth that is in him is what they're learning. Jesus is also the teacher or the instructor. He's the one they have met. He is the one telling them and explaining the truth to them. And then finally, Jesus is also the classroom, the context of their learning. Now that last one is still a bit hard for us to get. It's a little abstract, it's harder to grasp. So when, when, as I was trying to come to grips with it, I went and looked up how Brian taught the passage several years ago. So he used the imagery of an art gallery. So imagine with me this morning that we're all in an art gallery, but it's pitch black. It's dark, you can't see anything. And the tour guide is there and they're trying to explain to us what a painting is. They're talking about things like colors and shading and sculptures and shape and shades of things. But we're not gonna understand any of that if all we've ever known is darkness. But when Jesus comes into the art gallery, he fills it with light. And now we can see the paintings and we can see the colors and we can see the shading and the different ways that the artists do light in a painting and the shapes and the sculptures and all. And it's amazing and it's beautiful. And if we were to extend that analogy beyond the art gallery into life itself, we would say that's really true. When we are in Christ, when we go through as a follower of Jesus, when we go through anything in life with Jesus as the context of our learning, that he's with us, that we're in him, he fills the experience with light, no matter how dark it might seem, no matter how confusing it might be. Jesus is there and he's seeking to bring light into the darkness. Our experiential relationship with Jesus throughout life helps us to see light in life of a new reality. Now scholars would say that what Paul's talking about here is conversion. And New Testament scholar Klein Snodgrass, is quite the name, but Klein Snodgrass defines conversion this way, and I think he's keying on this passage. Conversion is the restructuring of a person's thinking by the Holy Spirit as a result of a direct encounter with the love of God in the person of Christ. I say it for you again. Conversion is the restructuring of a person's thinking by the Holy Spirit as a result of a direct encounter with the love of God in the person of Christ. So I want you to notice a couple things about this definition. First, notice it's about the mind, the restructuring of the thinking, which was the Ephesians problem when we started this prior to their conversion, right? They were darkened in their understanding and now Paul is saying, Jesus is gonna come and restructure your mind. But secondly, I want you to notice this, it's not just the mind. The heart, the affections are involved here. The person has a direct encounter with the love of God in the person of Christ. It's personal experiential knowledge, not just book knowledge, not secondhand knowledge. We would say this is what happens when someone prays a prayer, when they, they don't even have to pray a prayer, if in their heart they trust Christ's death on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins and begin following Jesus into the new reality of relationship with him in the kingdom of God. 
And Paul goes on to say then, that's what happened to you, Ephesians. And here, here's how you responded, and here's how you should continue to respond. That's verses 22 through 24. I'm going to start in 20 just to give you context because we're at the middle of a sentence. So, but you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, and here's what you were taught, here's what you learned, that in reference to your former manner of life, Ephesians, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and you put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Now the language here again, English language is good, but the Greek language is rather tricky to understand, so I'll see if I can explain it to you the best. There's both past tense and present tense going on in these verses. Paul's saying to the Ephesians, this is what you learned, this is what happened in your conversion, that in reference to your former way of life, the way you used to live when you were in darkness and ignorant, when you were dead, in reference to that way of life, here's what you do, you lay it aside. You take off the old self, you put on the new self, the new way of life. Now in Greek, these phrases for lay aside or put off and put on are in what's called the aorist infinitive tense. And all that means is that it describes a point in time action. Meaning, in this case, something that happened in the past for them. That was the point in time. Meaning at your conversion, this is the past tense. This is what you did, you laid aside the old self. The old way of life, The Ephesians were renewed by God. They put on the new self, a new way of living. Now, what's interesting about the aorist infinitive, though, is that that tense does not say anything about the continual results of that action. But Paul does that for us in the present tense, in verses 22 and 23. I want you to look at what he says is happening to the old self in 22. He says the old self is being corrupted. Not was being corrupted. It's still happening today. The old way of life is being corrupted. In verse 23, he says, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. The actual translation would say, and you be being renewed. But that doesn't make sense in English, so we don't translate it that way. But it's emphasizing past renewal as well as ongoing renewal. So when we talk about conversion, when were you converted, that, that kind of idea, we tend to think of it as a point in time thing, a moment in time. But Snodgrass goes on to say it's also a process. The beginning of conversion was the moment of salvation. The moment of trusting Christ, I take off the old self, I put on the new self. Conversion is a renunciation of a self-centered identity in favor of a Christ-centered identity. These words for take off and put on, the imagery is that of clothing, right? That I take off one outfit and I put on another outfit. Paul says when we learned Christ or experienced Christ, we took off the clothing of that old way of life, that old way of living because we're not dead any longer. But he also says in verse 22, what he's getting at is the degree to which you leave the old clothes on is the degree to which you will continue to suffer the corruption of those clothes. Meaning as long as you continue to act like and live like you did when you were dead, you're going to suffer the consequences of that kind of living. So take off the old and put on the new. Now notice a couple things about the new self. First of all, it's created by God. I don't create it, I don't go find myself somewhere. It's a miraculous, amazing thing that only God can do. But secondly, I do have to make a choice of my will to put it on. 
Putting it on means to live according to it. I don't have to live in darkness or ignorance any longer. I have the opportunity to live in the kingdom of God, to live according to my new life in Christ in the kingdom of God. And as I do that, my mind will continue to be renewed, meaning the degree to which I live in these new clothes is the degree to which I will experience the consequences or the rewards or the effects of that way of living. As I live out this new way of life, I begin to see, oh, in experience, oh, this really is the best way to live. Jesus' way, God's way really is the best way. It is the most satisfying life that there is. The Old Testament, or sorry, not the Old Testament, the old self is a state of ever-deepening corruption. And then the Christian life or the new self is an ever-increasing renewal of the mind. We see this all over Paul's writings in the New Testament, by the way. Romans 12 from last week, right? The second verse that Jeff talked about was a command to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's an ongoing thing. 2 Corinthians 4.16, therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. And then if you go to Colossians 3.10, where Paul is using very similar language in Colossians to put off and put on, he says this, and you have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So conversion and renewal are both a point in time thing and an ongoing process. Putting off the old and putting on the new is the pattern by which the followers of Jesus live day by day. Now in this next section of the text, Paul's going to indicate that the best place to practice putting off the old and putting on the new is in community. The best place for the ongoing and increasing renewal of our minds to take place is in community. He's not gonna say it explicitly, but he's going to give us specific things to put off and put on. He's using the same language he's been using, but in more specificity. And as I read this section, I want you to watch for how often, maybe count them on your fingers or in your head, how often does Paul talk about for your neighbor, for each other, for one another, for those, for someone else. Okay, verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each of one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil a foothold or an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for the edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed, for the day of redemption, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering 
and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Just like Romans was written to a church, to a group, to a community of people, Ephesians was written to a group, to a church, to a community of people. How many references did you see? I count six specific ones. Verse 25, speak truth, each one of you, to your neighbor. Verse 25, again, we are members of one another. Verse 28, work hard so that you will have something to share with one who has need. Verse 29, watch your speech, be careful with it so that what you say will benefit or edify or encourage those who hear. Verse 32, be kind to one another. Verse 32 again, forgive each other. But beyond the specific commands, think about the topics, the ideas of anger, wrath, bitterness, clamor, slander, love, tenderheartedness. They all revolve around relationships between people. Paul is saying the best place for renewal to take place, for the putting off of the old self and the putting on of the new self is in community. Now we're not going to dive deeply into every one of these commands this morning. One, because of time, but also because most of them, I think, are self-explanatory. We know what it means to speak truth to one another. We know what it looks like for our words to be edifying and encouraging and not slandering. We know what it means to not steal, but to labor so that we have something to share with those in need so that we can be generous. We know what it looks like to be kind to one another. We know what it means to not be angry and to forgive others. What we struggle with is taking off certain clothes and putting on others. We struggle with living it out. Some of us struggle with slowing down enough to even realize that we need to change clothes. Some of us, I think, are struggle to be honest enough with ourselves or with someone else to admit that we're struggling with anger or slander or unforgiveness or some other thing. And some of us don't have anyone we could maybe talk about that to. So let me ask you some questions this morning. What if there was a community that you could attend and when you, you knew that when you showed up, the truth would be spoken to you? And not in a harsh way, but in an edifying, encouraging way. What if there's a community like that? What if there was a community that you know that you could go and be honest about your struggle with anger or bitterness or whatever it is for you, and that when you did that, you would be received with kindness and tenderheartedness and the truth would be spoken to you about your struggle? What if there was a community that you could join where you could learn together what it means to be imitators of God and walk in love the way this text tells us? What if there was a community where you knew that you belonged, where you were members of one another, where your life was interconnected with others, where when you felt pain, that pain and that burden was carried with you. When you were rejoicing, they were rejoicing with you. What if there was a community where you could join together your resources when somebody was in need and meet the need for that person? What if there was a community where you could learn together what it means to not quench the spirit and then you could practice walking by the spirit together. What if there was a community like that? Would you join it? This is what we want life groups 
to be. This is what we pray for. It's what we hope for. It's what we train leaders for. It's why we invite you in. And by the way, we know that not every life group is all the things I just described. In fact, probably not any life group is all those things because life groups are made up of people who are in the process of ongoing renewal. We're all learning to put off the old way and put on the new way. But the best place for learning to do that is in community. And maybe you're thinking, well, I tried that. I tried a life group, it just didn't work. Can I encourage you this morning? Try again. Sometimes it takes a, a couple of different groups to find the right connection with people, right? Come out to the booth. Sign-up's happening right now. We're happy to try to help you find the right connection. In my own experience, it has been the communities that have surrounded me throughout my life that have made the most difference when it comes to my transformation and my renewal. If I were to pick the thing out of this text, they would immediately jump out to me and say, what's the thing you struggle with most that was named in Ephesians 4? It would be anger. I can see it in my life all the way back to high school in various forms, but I would tell you that in the last 10 to 15 years of my life, I have made a concerted effort to put anger off, especially when it comes to my kids. When my boys were younger, I didn't, I, I don't, for whatever reason, I do not like it when things get loud, even if they're just having fun downstairs, right? So how would I respond? Well, I raise my voice and berate them and get angry. And it was wrecking my relationship with them. And I have listened to a lot of sermons and I've read books and I have dug into my past and I have memorized verses and I still repeat verses to myself today. All of that stuff is good. But what has made the difference is the community around me. Why? Because those were the people the flesh and blood who I looked in the eye and confessed to when I had failed again. And it was those people when I was feeling shame because again, here it is again. I cannot seem to beat this thing and I'm wrecking it. It was those people who would speak the truth to me and they would say, you are forgiven by the blood of Jesus. And then it was those people who would say, Go put on humility and love and go back to your kids and ask them for forgiveness. It was the community of people who came alongside of me and said, don't give up. Keep putting on love and putting off anger. And I still struggle. I'm, I still struggle putting off anger, but I'm being honest. I, I, I'm in the process of renewal and I'm learning to put on love. And Paul is saying here in this text, we have a responsibility as the body of Christ to one another. We are members of one another. Living in community is not an option. Or sorry, living in community is not optional as a follower of Jesus. We're members of one another. This is found throughout Paul's writings as well, Romans 12. Further in the text, he says, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. 1 Corinthians 12 talks all about 
how the members of the body are to function and support one another. And then earlier in chapter four of Ephesians and in the later chapters of Ephesians, Paul discusses again the fact and the idea that we are members of the body of Christ and connected to one another and support one another. C.S. Lewis discusses these ideas in a sermon he called The Weight of Glory. And I could quote what Lewis has to say to you on my own because it fits so well with what Paul is saying in this passage. But I'd rather have you see it and hear it as if it's coming from him. So a couple of years ago, a new movie was made about the conversion of C.S. Lewis called The Most Reluctant Convert. And in this clip, he is reflecting on the difference his conversion makes in his life. So take a look at this clip and then I'll come back up with a few comments. My conversion shed new light on my search for joy, the overwhelming longings that emerged from fantasies of my brother's toy garden were merely signposts to what I truly desired. They were not the thing itself. I concluded that if I find in myself a desire that no experience in this world could satisfy, the most probable explanation, I was made for another world. At present, we're on the outside of that world, the wrong side of the door. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see. But all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. One day, God willing, we shall get in. Meanwhile, the cross comes before the crown, and tomorrow is another morning. A cleft is opened in the pitiless walls of this world and we have been invited to follow our great captain inside. Following him is, of course, the essential point. That Christmas, I took the short walk to my parish church. That walk marked the end of one journey and the beginning of another. As I looked around, I thought not only of my own potential glory hereafter, but also that of my neighbor's glory. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you meet may one day be a creature that if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to fall down and worship, or else a horror, or a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are helping each other to one or the other of these two destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities that I should now conduct all my dealings. 
Now, no ordinary people. I've never met a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as that of a gnat. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, exploit. The weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy. Only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. So I'm stuck by, struck by several things in this clip. He, he talks about the new reality that we're on the outside of the door, but we've been f- invited to follow our great captain inside. And he says, following him, of course, is the essential point. And he goes on then to say, all day long, we are helping each other to one or the other of these two destinations of glory, transformation, becoming like Christ, or corruption. And he says this, it is in light of these overwhelming possibilities that I should now conduct all my dealings for Lewis. This is what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. He was responsible for the weight of his neighbor's glory. Goes on, says, there are no ordinary people. I've never met a mere mortal. It is immortals who we joke with, work with, marry, snub, exploit. The weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back. A weight, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it. We are responsible for one another's transformation and renewal into glory, but we participate humbly. I'm not, it's not all up to me for my neighbor's glory, that person has to take some responsibility themselves as well, I have to take some for myself, and ultimately God is involved in the process and he's the one that ultimately brings about the transformation, but we participate, we have a responsibility. And did you notice then, finally, that the director's interpretation had Lewis sitting in a church as a part of a congregation as these last words were spoken? Exactly where we find ourselves this morning. So take a moment, look around. There's no mere mortals in here. But I can't take on, you can't take on the weight of a thousand other people's transformation into glory. Practically, it's not feasible, which is where life groups come into play. A small community 10 to 12 people somewhere in there who belong to one another and take responsibility for each other's transformation. We bear the weight of one another's movement towards glory or corruption. So here's the application this morning. The ushers are getting ready to, they're going to pass buckets through the rows. And these buckets have Lego bricks in them. Go ahead guys, you can pass them through. If you're ready, 
in humility to take up the weight of another's glory, your neighbor's glory. I'd encourage you to take one of these Lego bricks. The primary environment we see this taking place is in life groups in our church. And if you're in a life group, have been in a life group, you lead a life group, you're committed to life groups, or if you are planning and want to join a life group, take a Lego brick. Here's what we're gonna do with these bricks together as a congregation. There are four stations in the hallways, one at the southeast entry, one over by the northeast entry, there's one up by the Belong gathering room, E202, and then there's one further north in the hallway towards the children's area outside the upper uh, courtyard. You can go to any of these stations. Someone will be there to help you know what to do and where to place your brick. We're going to make a Lego mural for life groups as a congregation. You can sign your name on your brick and then someone will be there and help you know where to place it. What color you take doesn't matter. If for some reason you don't get a brick this morning, there are bricks available at a station. Don't take this home and think, I'll come back and put mine in next week because it'll be done by then. This is just a symbolic way of saying, I'm in. I'll be part of a life group. I'll do my part to carry the weight of someone else's movement towards glory. By putting this brick in place, you are saying, I'll speak truth to one another. I'll seek to put off anger. I'll share what I have with those in need. I'll seek to have my speech be edifying and encouraging. I'll seek to live according to the spirit and I'll put off bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and I'll seek to put on kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness. And I'll seek to walk in truth and love because this is what it means to follow Jesus and participate in the body of Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the Apostle Paul. We're grateful for your Holy Spirit. That yes, we should bear the weight, but we don't have to bear all of it. And that your Holy Spirit is in the process right now of renewing and restructuring our minds. Thank you for Jesus coming and allowing us to have a personal encounter with him. And I pray, God, as we step into life groups this fall, as we step into one another's lives in a more concerted way, that you would work. You would help us to understand what it means and the things we need to put off and the things we need to put on. Help us to speak truth to one another. We pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.